the Cambridge Marketing Podcast with Kiran Kapoor. Brought to you by Cambridge Marketing College. See their range of courses and apprenticeships at marketingcollege.com. Hello and welcome. Today we are talking entrepreneurship and my guest is a serial entrepreneur, Drew Moffitt, who is coming from New York City and he tells me he's in the centre of Manhattan, which I have to say on a grey English day sounds very, very exotic. Drew, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for your time. I'm really interested in your background as you are a, a serial entrepreneur. So can we explore a little bit about the background and some of the entrepreneurship that you've done, and then we'll talk about the qualities that helped you do those? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, thank you very much for having me. Tell me a little bit about some of the businesses that you have founded. Yeah, so I um, had the unlucky uh, timing of graduating or entering school just before the, the 2008 financial crisis and exiting college uh, in 2011. Um, and I didn't really intend on getting into startups and helping build uh you know early stage businesses and ultimately also founded some uh but i had kind of naively thought oh i would just you know i went to school in new york city uh one of the outer boroughs and i uh just kind of assumed i would go and uh work in finance and i was at small liberal arts college and it's not in 2011, financial services was pretty heavily hit and uh, was not looking to hire, and they were definitely not doing on-campus recruiting where I uh, had gone to college. And I ended up briefly working in high-end residential real estate. Uh, and there was a lot of value to that. Like, it just kind of learned understanding, you know, customer relationships and things of that nature. Um, I was working with someone who had a very established record, and that was uh, – you know, basically assisting her. And then I wanted to do something a little more exciting and edgy. And I ended up finagling my way into auditing some classes at Columbia Business School uh, here in New York uh, around entrepreneurship. And then subsequently, 10 years plus later, uh, I've helped found two companies. I've had a modest exit of one. I spent three years building four corporate-backed ventures. Um, and then most recently, uh, I'm a very early uh, member of a now Series A uh, startup. Okay. And you describe yourself as industry agnostic. And certainly looking at your experiences, you have jumped from industry to industry. Yeah, I think, you know, going back to just how my career developed, as I was describing coming out of college, there wasn't any... Um, there wasn't any like graduate, you know, if I graduated and maybe gone into finance, I probably would have stayed in financial services. I may have gone into startups and ended up in like doing work heavily in fintech. Um, but because I kind of was jumping around really early in the career, I was very comfortable kind of switching industries. So when I went to the, I was auditing the classes at Columbia Business School, the first company was called Forever Not. And, uh, it briefly went viral. Um, it was a relationship betting app. You could basically put a bet on the relationship status of like a celebrity. Uh, I think like, you know, governmental leaders in the U.S., um, you know, the Clintons, Obamas, uh, uh, people like 
music people like Kanye West, for example, by the way, his uh, odds were actually pretty low that that relationship was going to last. It, it, it did last, I guess, a lot longer than I thought it might, but um, <laughs> uh, it, it's no more now. Um, but eventually Apple, just, once we've gone viral, was like, well, we don't really like this. It doesn't, it doesn't conform very well to, to our aerial brand. And, you know, having gone from being bootstrapped and sleeping on a couch to being on like Good Morning America's TV show, and then, you know, a month less than a month later, you know, have raised a, a round of capital and le- less than a month later, Apple being like, yeah, we don't want, we're not letting you stay in the app store. And there's kind of nothing we can do about it. Um, I was <laughs> pretty much in need of finding some work. And uh, that's where I just kind of was open to anyone helping anyone. And there was a lot of people in the startup ecosystem. It was pretty small at the time in New York that were like, Drew, that was, you know, my startup is struggling to under, to like acquire customers and grow. And I went from this kind of social relationship betting app to uh, actual uh, HIPAA compliant Skype products, though, tele- telemedicine. So complete uh, jump there. And then the rest of my career just kind of was comfortable making those kind of jumps. So when you are... Um, I mean, I think for a lot of people, I mean, you, you built up a... a an unusual business, shall we say, on the social side of betting where the celebrity yeah. um, um, celebrity relationships were going to continue. But you'd had a, a you'd you'd had, and I've seen some of your TV clips of your TV show. You you'd had um, coverage and media interest and what have you, and then literally overnight, Apple just say that's it, we're pulling the plug. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a little known thing. <clears throat> you think of the Apple App Store as this like democratic marketplace, but at the the core, it's it's owned by a private company. So it is, uh, you know, judge, juror, and executioner is Apple. Um, if they don't like it for some reason, they have the right as a private business to not allow you into their ecosystem. Um, and back in 2014, uh, all the money, even today, um, almost still a vast majority of the money is made through the Apple App Store versus the, the Google Play Store. But that was the um, the gap was far bigger back then. And um, they basically, at the time, it was called the 14.1 guideline. Um, today, I believe it's called the 1.1.1 guideline, unless Apple has renumbered their developer guidelines. Um, basically, what it says is anything that they view as like mean and derogatory uh, is not allowed. And then they have a kind of catch-all after that as the next guideline that says anything that's engaged in like satire is allowed. So that's how um, here in the United States, there's a, a show and, and I guess a website as well called TMZ, which basically is pretty mean to celebrities and they have an app and they're completely fine. Um, but it just comes down to, I, I think it was a, somewhat a victim of its own success because Apple had approved the product, allowed it into the app store. You know, someone in, inside of Apple had had reviewed the, the guidelines and said we were not violating them. Um, and then during a software update to fix bugs, they uh, they took that opportunity to say that actually we don't we don't like the product. As an entrepreneur, how do you? What happened? What goes through your mind? Because you've built this up, you've worked on it, and then suddenly it's not there. How do? How does that? I don't want to say how does that make you feel, but what goes through your mind at that point? What do you do to then move yourself on? So I was a little bit lucky in having learned of someone else that this had happened to, and that gave me. Uh, at least like motionally, like some degree of like solitude there. So um, there was a company called, uh, I think it was a lot more provocative, 
kind of descriptor, something to the effect of like bang with friends or something. Um, but they ultimately got removed. It was just Tinder, but with a lot more aggressive sounding uh, title to their app. And then they had eventually gone through about a six month process and had to just rebuild their their uh, their app and they renamed it down. Um, and I happened to like meet that founder. So that like just kind of hearing his experience was like, yeah, like it, it made me because um, there's always that that moment of like, why did this happen to me? But mm -hmm. it's also like, did I screw up? And mm -hmm. talking to him just kind of, you know, reassured me that like, hey, this is just like an unlucky you know, it's like someone getting a, a rare disease. It's just kind of, you're, you're unlucky in that situation. Um, so there's nothing like you can br blame on yourself. Uh, but what comes out of that is a lot of reflection about how maybe you could have gotten to that place faster. So a lot of what has driven the way that I, you know, worked to, you know, all the rest of my career and especially today is I like to find out when something's going to fail as quickly as possible. And right now I lead marketing. A lot of my career has focused on kind of that business side of the house. There, are, And even if you're doing product development, there is a lot of times that you're just taking good bets, but those bets are never guaranteed. For example, like in the case of uh, um, Forever Not, we took the bet that if we did a big media blitz and launched the app just before Valentine's Day, like that would be a right time and we'd get a ton of media. And subsequent, you know, projects I've been involved with, like have made those same bets and sometimes gotten media and sometimes not. So uh, with Forever Not, I just wish I had probably built the app in a lot faster um, ways, maybe slim things down to get to that inflection point of like being in the app store sooner so that, um, you know, the outcome would have uh, been known sooner. basically it took me, I think about nine to, to, to 12 months to get from kind of idea through, um, to, uh, ultimately getting delisted from the app store. And I, I wish I, you know, in hindsight, I was just, and I focused a lot on like, how could I do that faster? And that became kind of a driving force of the rest of my career. So driving force is almost failing faster. Yeah, it's failing faster. It's trying to figure out um, if this, I'd put it a little differently as it's finding out if this is a viable idea. So as my career progressed, um, I did a, a subsequent startup uh, called Tailbus and I had a modest exit there. Um, and there were some <clears throat> issues with the core of that business. That was just a space. Yeah basically think like Uber pool, but for a bus. And it would be to go from, uh, say, in a, a hometown or city in England to an away soccer game. And uh, that would be an example use case. Or it could be going to like wine tasting in, in the New York, like North Fork of the Long Island or, um, you know, a slew of other things. <clears throat> and uh, basically just saying, Hey, I live in, you know, near midtown Manhattan. There's other people who want to do this activity. Uh, let's pull those people together and then we'll get them a vehicle. Uh, so it turns out that like Andreessen Horowitz had actually taken a really big bath. Um, they had made an investment in a company called leap, uh, in San Francisco, um, around buses and it had done really badly. And it had a bit of a, um, like herd mentality is very common within venture capital. And <clears throat> that was just not a good signal 
for the rest of Sandhill Road um, in, in Palo Alto, which is where a lot of the biggest venture funds are, um, to continue funding that space. So, but where how this relates back to my experience at Forever Not is that I went from idea to like iter- first iteration of the product, like actually running and, and transacting and, and having a trip happen in less than 60 days. So by the time I was, you know, four or five months out into that business and had about a half million dollar um, run rate, I was already starting to learn about the ecosystem that venture capital was really not interested in this space. Um, and then it started making sense. Well, let's see, there is one large, larger player. They have gotten mostly funding from uh, European automakers. Uh, you know, maybe there's a way that they're interested in acquiring us. And that was the, uh, the ultimate outcome there. Um, but it was really driven by the fact that I, I had reflected so much on how long the time had taken for forever. Not like nine months or so is, is still pretty quick. Um, but I had kind of condensed that and figured out how can I scrap that down to just, you know, 60 days from basically idea to basic landing page to first transacting revenue all within 60 days. What I find so fascinating is quite often when I'm interviewing people who've started their own business, they've started it up and their assumption is that they're going to be running the business for 5, 10, 15, even 20 years. Um, And your mindset is very different. And that's what I'm finding so interesting. You are looking to be much more agile. It doesn't seem like your intention is to stay within the company that you've created. It is to create it and then move on. I think I think partially that analysis is right and partially I, I would disagree with it. Um, mm-hmm. The part I would agree with is I definitely approach it through that lens of just like how can we move faster. Um, in the case of like Tailbus, there just wasn't much of a future there. So it just felt like the right decision was to you know take the small win, sell it to the largest competitor in the space and let them continue the good fight. Um, and they still operate, but they haven't, you know, IPO'd, right? So I, I think my analysis of that situation was was pretty right in that moment. Like, um, it wasn't it wasn't going to become you weren't just going to have the hundreds of millions or tens, uh, or, you know, even billions of dollars that was getting pumped into taxis um, coming into the market. <clears throat> so ability to like venture back, drive venture back growth is going to be very hard. Uh, but in the, in the case of, you know, I spent the next couple of years, I was just acting as a consultant where I was hired gun who would, you know, basically a mercenary show up for a CEO of a, typically a public company and build a business for them somewhere in the world. Um, but then most recently at Kumo Space, um, I'm coming up on almost two and a half years now here. And, and the company's product went into market just, a li- you know, about 45 days before I joined. So I think when you're thinking about like a small business, you need to think about, I'm going to be at this company for five, 10 years. When you're thinking about like a venture back startup, everyone wants to think that they're going to be there in five, 10 years. But the reality is the drop off between like, you know, pre-funding to seed round funding to like a round and then ultimately like B round. That's where a lot of the, the startups either find an actual higher route out or they just have to shut their doors. So there tends to be a lot of that kind of behavior at, you know, for example, at, at Kumo space, uh, I, 
I think I'm creating value at the company, so that's why I'm still here. And I'd like to be here uh, for as long as that journey um, you know, goes for. But I also basically uh, gone through the hard knocks of startups here and having some interesting experiences, going back to the original one with Forever Not and, and Apple. Um, I always ask myself, like, is my role at the company I'm at, um, am I actually the person to get the job done? Right. So like I have a lot of experience in my career going from zero to one. I have less of it going from like one to ten. Kind of in the Kumo space world right now, like we're in that one to ten world space. Uh I'm creating value. Um I'm excited about what we're doing there. But I also uh kind of to embrace the the founding team and the motto inside of Netflix is like if you do your job really well, you should put yourself out of a job. So I, I do kind of always think about like I'm not here for my ego. I'm here because I'm trying to like get an outcome, which in this case is, you know, continue to grow Kumo Space. Okay, I'll come on to Kumo Space in a moment. Can we, you went over very quickly the different levels of um, seed funding that companies can go through. And I suspect a lot of people, certainly Mike, um, certainly for me, I'm, I'm not au fait with those. Can, can you go through those slightly more slowly as to what the different stages are? Yeah, so typically... Uh, and, you know, taking like Tailbus or Forever Not as an example. So typically you have your pre-funding, um, which is when it's just you, maybe a co-founder, maybe you're a little bit of your own money and you have some contractors or like offshore people, something of that nature. Uh, and that is that period of where you're just trying to prove that there is op- a business opportunity here. Um, and that's really that like pre-funding stage. Then typically after that, um, you'll have uh, what's called, sometimes people call it a pre-seed round of funding. Sometimes people just jump directly to a seed round of funding. Um, The typical difference between that is a pre-seed will typically not have large institutional investors like a venture fund. Um, It might just be a bunch of like high net worth individuals. And whereas a seed will typically have some type of institution. Uh, in the deal. And the valuations and the amount of money that is being raised at those those uh, rounds fluctuates with interest rates, geography, etc. But loose kind of numbers in the US right now is a seed round is like several million dollars of funding. And then that typically will buy you a year and a half to two and a half years of runway in your business to get to that next inflection point, which is a series A. And a series A, again, in the United States, um, it depends, but it can be from like the high, you know, single millions, you know, seven, eight, nine million up into like the low, the higher teens you know, 15 to $20 million kind of range. And that's your series A. Um, most of the seed is largely predicated on the, uh, the ability to sell your investors on the idea. The idea, you know, looking for, for Uber, for example, is the idea was I'm going to have an app that lets you uh, get a taxi on your phone. And they may not even have, they may not have had that app when they raised, I think it was around 1.2 million um, for their first seed round. And then you have a year or so, you go and you develop that app. 
and you've gotten customers and you've transacted, you know, maybe hundreds or thousands of taxi rides that, that Uber had facilitated and you go for your series A and they, I think they raised uh, around like maybe 7 million kind of number. And that, again, you're still largely at the series A you're selling the ability of the team to have taken idea and turn that into like fledgling business and execution. And then from series A to series B, um, it is really about scaling growth and often depending on the interest rate environment and current environment now, it's a lot more about profitability and lower interest rate environments. Um, investors may be more excited about growth, so they're less concerned about profitability. But it's really showing that you could take, in the example of Uber that I was giving, those you know hundreds or thousands of rides that you facilitated and turn that into like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of rides that have happened on, 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 through the app. And if you could do that, you'll get to your kind of your Series B. And typically past a Series B, the probability that you have a favorable exit, either a large company buys you, um, uh, an investment firm buys you, or in the very low probability, you continue to grow and ultimately maybe go public. Uh, after that Series B kind of time frame, that's a lot more uh, of a sh- assured result. Um, there's still high probabilities of failure there, um, but before the series B, that's where a lot of startups, um, you know, vast majority, it's something in like the 99% likelihood, I think, uh, of like ideas or pre-seed startups never make it to B. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of, a lot more risk that the investors are taking off and, and a lot more probability of failure at those kind of seed and series A um, to making it to that next milestone. Does that make sense? Brilliant. That was incredibly clear. Thank you very much. So, Cumo Space, which is your your latest venture, um, you've you said you were at Series A stage. Did I get a. that right? Yes. Yeah. And um, so, tell us a little bit about what Cumo Space is. Yeah. So, Cumo Space is a virtual office uh, software provider. Um, what we're building is we're replicating all the benefits of a physical office in a virtual environment. So teams that are running a hybrid or remote organizational structure, the reasons that people say, hey, let's maybe go back to a physical office, typically is some combination. It it depends on the organization's individual pain points, but some combination of um, visibility, right? You don't have that metadata. You don't have that knowing that your two colleagues are having a conversation in a conference room right now. you uh, run into a lot of issues with collaboration, especially kind of cross-departmental collaboration. Remote work can be highly efficient, but sometimes when you have to collaborate, um, async is not the best communication form uh, mm-hmm. practice for that. And the last one is kind of the cultural elements. So I got involved with Kumo Space. Uh, it was incorporated in May of 2020. Uh, the beta product uh, launched in... Uh, the start of August uh, 2020, and I got involved in September uh, of 2020. So very early in the company's life cycle, um, there were two co-founders at the time. There was one other employee and then myself. Um, 
And subsequently, a couple months later, those co-founders raised a Series Seed. Um, it was a $3 million funding round. Um, and as I was describing before, with the kind of funding, it gave us those kind of horizons of, um, you know, well over, you know, somewhere probably in the range of like two years of runway. And a, almost exactly one year later, um, in November of 2021, we success or they more accurately successfully raised a Series A, which was led by Lightspeed Ventures. Um, that was about $21 million dollar. Uh, funding round. So collectively, the company uh, has over $24 million in funding today. And marketing-wise, how do you market Humo Space? Because obviously it's it's virtual and, and we all understand the idea of sort of um, uh, a, a virtual platform or a virtual video chat. But how, so how do you go about marketing that and making people understand it? Yeah, so it's, first thing uh, I would say is that funding is... Um, often viewed, a lot of people think of it as like a success metric, right? Like I said, that there's $24 million in funding in Kumo space. Um, now the real hard work begins of, and it did after the, the $3 million seed to actually like build and market that business. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of history of the business is it started off as, Hey, zoom is really not good and Zoom type products are not good for group interactions. They're good for having one-on-one -on -one or maybe like two or three person um, conversations. But when you try to have like a 10 person conversation, um, they're just not that good. And that was the original version of Kumo Space. And there wasn't much uh, that we had around, you know, who our ideal consumer was, um, what our exact value prop was. Um, we just kind of threw it into the market. And as such, I was very much just going back to my earlier part of my career where I was, I was saying how I learned to just try ideas and figure out what worked. Um, I was trying a lot of ideas and an idea that took hold very well in early 2021 was um, spreading the world on social media through influencer marketing about uh, the fact that there was an alternative to Zoom and we had some kind of tailwinds, right? Everyone uh, in 2021 was largely locked down. Um, <laughs> everyone was highly Zoom fatigued. And mm -hmm. there is was a rise in the use of social media because people were sitting at home and not being at like the local pub. And there was also the rise of short form video content. So if you go and look at like hashtag uh, Kumo Space on TikTok, there's you know, north of 75 million views just for that hashtag. Um, and we were able to build a process that was very cost effective, that got millions of eyeballs uh, in front of the product and, and, and users. And <clears throat> we we're just letting people kind of use it. And then the, on the product side of the house, they're trying to figure out like, what is the real long-term use there? So as 2021 started to come to a close and we had been used for large fortune 10 conferences, you know, companies uh, organizing their conferences uh, and at the kind of large scale down to the small scale of people like just getting together a family and a lot of uh, company happy hours and things of that nature, you know, kind of in the middle range. We realized that a lot of this was being, the product was being used as this kind of virtual event that happens, you know, maybe your quarterly all hands meeting. And then there was a subset of users who had, decided not to return to any type of hybrid model that were just fully remote, 
that was starting to use our product, even though it was missing a lot of the features to make it a really good virtual office um, piece of software. Uh, as this always on office for their team to come work, collaborate and like bond together in a virtual space. And much of 2022 has focused on building those features. And as, as such as the marketing side of the house, we have, you know, pumped the brakes on doing our influencer marketing for the time being and really focus because that product, the, the way that we were marketing back then was a true like B to C to B. So we would get a lot of views in a consumer environment. Those consumers had jobs and through that word of mouth um, in their workplace, we would get business clients to pay us to do things like the Google Cloud Conference. And then now the focus is more traditional like B2B marketing. And a big piece of that right now for us is focusing on search engine optimization and creating a lot of content. Because although virtual office software isn't a super search term right now, the problems that the software is fixing are readily, readily searched by people. So you have you know, tertiary or similar topics that people are looking for is like how to run a good remote all hands meeting. Um, or how do I improve my remote company culture? So we're, we're focusing a lot on, uh, you know, providing resources for, for managers. That's typically the persona that is buying the virtual office software um, to be looking for a resource and then learn about Kumo Space. And we're lucky that we also have a lot of tailwinds just from all that word of mouth that happened in 2021 with tons of companies having used it for like an all hands meeting or happy hour or some other type of activity, business development event, et cetera. Um, so those people tend to come back and say, oh, let me look at this. And then they, they're learning about the virtual office uh, offering. Drew Moffitt, thank you so much for that. It, that's been absolutely fascinating hearing somebody who is a such a serial entrepreneur and also how you have adapted and developed the marketing around um, a relatively new product, um, Cumo Space, and changed it as, as it has gone along. I think that's been a real insight. Thank you. If anybody wants to look up Cumo Space, it is K-U-M-O Space. Um, and that's what you would Google. Drew Moffitt, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. The Cambridge Marketing Podcast from Cambridge Marketing College. Training marketing and PR professionals across the globe.